Well, afternoon, everybody. I think that has to be the best animation film out there. I know some of you are Frozen fans, aren't you? Steve, a bit of a Frozen fan. <laughs> Later on, Steve's going to lead us and let, us, let it go at the end of the service. Um, so we're going to begin by agreeing with the theologian Shrek. He says, ogres have layers, onions have layers. It's true. And this story, when you look at it, has a bunch of layers. And that's why I began with that clip. We're going to look at a story out of Genesis 29 about Jacob. And uh, we started this last week. Hillary uh, spoke excellently about Jacob's kind of like background and family. And if you know the story, just a quick recap. If you don't know it, basically Jacob grows up in the house of a brother Esau. And Esau is the older brother, but he basically deceives Esau kind of, or Esau sells him his birthright. And then Jacob deceives his dad, Isaac, into blessing him. And he basically is a a deceiver and a thief, and he has to leave home. His mom helps him leave because he's in danger from Esau, his brother. And he leaves home and runs via Bethel, which is like a place of spiritual encounter where he has this amazing dream of a ladder going up and down to heaven. And he turns up at his uncle's house, Rebecca, his mum's brother's house, Laban, and basically starts to work for Laban. And while he's there, he meets uh, Laban's sister, uh, daughters, Rachel and Leah. And we're going to read uh, from there. And through this this morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at this story has a number of layers to it. Three layers we're going to look at. But let's read from verse 14 of chapter 29 in Genesis. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. After Jacob had stayed with him, that's Laban, for a month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters The name of the old one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, no, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. Notice he doesn't actually say yes to him. So Jacob served for seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Let's all say, ah. This sounds like some kind of Shakespearean play, doesn't it? Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Now, I don't think that's a particularly subtle message to your father-in-law, but anyway. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When the morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He really wants this girl. And he finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his daughter, his servant Bilhar to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Now Jacob made love to Rachel also, also, and also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. 
So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to her son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she knows, So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to her son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. On the surface layer of this story, this storyline that we're reading about, what you have really is a story of relational mess. Yeah? It's like EastEnders all over again. It's like Dynasty. Do you remember Dynasty? I think they're remaking Dynasty, I think. Yeah, something to look forward to there, everybody. Okay. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a kind of bizarre, messy dynamics between Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban and how he deals with his daughters. And it's really, really messy. And that's what this story is about. But when you look at it carefully, what you realize is what happens as an adult for Jacob doesn't begin then. Jacob's kind of messy relationships with Rachel and Leah doesn't begin when Jacob shows up at Laban's house. It doesn't begin when he gets married. It doesn't even begin when he kind of deceives and robs from his dad and his brother. It begins when he's a kid growing up in Isaac and Rebekah's house. It begins right back there. In one sense, we are all the product of our history and our families. That's, in some sense, normal and inevitable. Our history shapes us, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, a kind of a normal genetic biological side to this that we're a bit like our families. We look like our brothers or sisters or we sound a bit like our parents. Um, when I was growing up, my mum was a chiropodist. This meant she was a foot doctor, which meant that we all used to get quite a lot of people ringing up to make appointments with her at our home. I've got two brothers and we all used to pick up the phone and go, oh, no, it's another patient. Often they were quite a little older, so their hearing wasn't always so good, which was fine. But what was more difficult was the fact they always used to be convinced that I was my mum. So they'd go, is that Mrs. Varley? And I'd go, no, it's not Mrs. Varley. Well, Mrs. Varley, I've got a terrible problem with my feet. I'm sorry, my mum's not here right now. It's my verrucas and my corns. And I'd be like, we'd have this conversation for five minutes where they would tell me their issues and I would constantly try and tell them that I'm not my mum because obviously they thought I sounded like my mum. We sound a bit like our parents. Even dogs look like their owners. Have you noticed this? Uh, not my dog, but other people's dogs. It's bizarre. Like that dog, that person. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't know which one is morphing into changing It's a kind of normal side to it, but there's also like a slightly more sinister side to it as well, the darker side to this, and that's what you find in this story, because Jacob's challenge and trauma as as an adult in his relationships begins out of trauma in his relationship as a child, and you find it, if you go back into chapter 25, you'll find it encapsulated in one little verse, verse 28, where it says this, Isaac, that's Jacob's dad, loved Esau, that's his brother, but Rebecca, his mum, loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Parents, if you want to mess your kids up, pick a favorite. I'm not advocating that you do, by the way. I'm saying this is a bad thing to do. I'm trying to make a point. Trying to avoid phrases like, if only you were more like your brother, or we never had this kind of issue with your sister. That's the kind of house he grows up in, and quite possibly it's the kind of house that you may have grown up in. And so much, if you like, on the surface level of this story, so much of his struggle in his relationships as an adult is born out of the divided and the divisive way his parents parented him and his brother. 
And what you find, alarmingly, is this not just isolated to one generation. This has gone from another generation to another one to another one. So if you go back, you go back to Abraham, so Jacob's grandfather, Isaac's dad. Isaac grew up in a house with Abraham and Sarah, and he had a brother called Ishmael, half-brother. And in the story, which we've already seen, Sarah, his mum, can't cope with Hagar being there with Ishmael. And even though Abraham loved Ishmael, in the end, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. So in other words, Isaac grows up in a house where his half-brother is sent away, and he stays. He's the chosen one, and he gets to stay. Then Isaac and Rebekah do it, as we've just seen. They pick a favorite, this one or this one. And Rebekah, Jacob's mum, even helps Jacob steal and deceive from his dad and his brother. I mean, it's horrible. Like the amount of conflict and mess in that and the way it messes up these kids. And then you fast forward again into Jacob's life. Jacob has 12 sons. Guess what he does? He picks a favorite. He does the same thing that he's been the victim of that they were the victim of. It cycles from one generation to another. And that can happen to us. What happens to us in our history shapes us. And particularly when our foundational relationships have been full of pain and conflict, it can leave us with issues which, if we don't deal with them, can then manifest themselves in the way we form relationships and the kind of drivers we have for making relationships. Now, the good news in the story is that's not where this story ends. Okay, Jacob goes on to make mistakes, but it doesn't have to be that your history shapes us, but it doesn't have to define you. Okay? There's another one greater coming who wants to define you. But that's where it begins on the surface. It begins with mess here as an adult because of mess here as a kid. Now, you take the layer off that again. You go to the second layer. What do you find? Well, you find for both Jacob and Leah, because of the vulnerability of their hearts, because of their parents and what's happened and has not happened for them as kids, it drives them into a life of searching for some kind of fulfillment, particularly out of other relationships with other people. So they live lives of searching. Layer two, Jacob especially, lives a life for decades where he is searching for some kind of fulfillment. He leaves home, runs away, has to get to Laban's house. He's searching and craving some kinds of acceptance. He's probably not even aware of it because often we're not. But out of reaction to what hasn't happened as a kid, he's here and he arrives. And very quickly he meets Rachel. And he falls for the beautiful Rachel. Leah, we're told the older sister, is not beautiful, but Rachel is, and Jacob falls for her. Now, you can read that story and go, well, that's just a normal story. That's like what we see in the films. Like, he sees her, he falls for her, she falls, you know, and it's just normal. But actually, when you read the story properly, if you really look at it, you'll find it's not normal. There's some quite unhealthy things in this story which should tell you this is not a normal kind of romantic, you know, story about man meets boy meets girl. Four things you can notice that tell you this. First of all, this. Jacob starts working for Laban, and Laban says, well, I should pay you. Even though you're family, what do you want to be paid? Or or, or what can I pay you? And, And Jacob says immediately, straight off the bat, he goes, seven years, I'll work for you for Rachel. Now, you might think that sounds like an incredibly romantic notion, and wow, what an amazing gesture. This is a remarkably desperate plea. He's offering way over the odds. Like they reckon that's four or five times what you would normally offer or say in that kind of situation, scholars think. He offers way over. This is not a normal offer, in other words. He's desperate. Rachel is everything to him. Not just someone he loves, in other words. 
Second thing, we're told that he works for seven years, but it feels considered it just like a few days. Now we think, oh, that sounds so romantic. But it tells you something about how fixated he is on having Rachel. She's like it. She is everything. At the end of the seven years, Jacob's counting off the days. He finishes the last day of seven years. He turns up at Laban's house and I've done seven years. Now, and this is what he says, I want your, wife, your, your daughter and I want to have sex with her. Thanks so much. Now, I don't mind what culture you're from. I suggest to you that is not an appropriate way to speak to your prospective father-in-law. There's something desperate about that. That's not just a guy who fancies her. That's like, that's weird. Okay, that's like, that like and if you are here and you're single and you want to get engaged, I suggest if you go to the dad, if there is a dad, and you want to ask for their, their, his daughters, don't say, I'd like to marry your, your daughter because I want to have sex with her. Don't say that. Okay, that's not going to, even if it's true, it's not going to go well for you. I, and if it does go well for you and he thinks that's a good thing, you really should question whether this is a good family to marry into as well. I want to, okay, so every, that's all, there should be singles going, woo, 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 this is bad. He's desperate. He's like, there's something overly wrong and tense with this. And then lastly, this. This is very interesting. Notice Laban never said yes to Jacob about having Rachel. Laban just said, well, I suppose it'd be better to give, you, to you, to give her to you than somebody else. But Jacob hears yes. Now, this is often what happens, particularly in relationships. When, it, when there's a really unhealthy driver in terms of why I must have this person or I must get married, if that becomes everything and you become fixated, what happens is uh, you will hear and see whatever it is you want to hear or see. You'll meet somebody, you'll fall for them, and you will ignore all the other things which are possibly sending warning signs to you. Similarly, you will ignore anybody else's comments to you where they'll say to you, are you sure this is a good choice? Are you sure they're right for you? Or, you, know, are you, sure? you, don't know them. you haven't known them very long. You've only known them three weeks and you're already engaged. Are you sure that's a good idea? And people will say that to you and you'll go, no, I'll only see what I want to see and I'm only going to listen to what I want to listen to. I, although I look very young, and I am, I've been a pastor for 20 years. And through that time, I've known lots of moments where we've been in situations with people who are making on the edge of making really, really, potentially very bad and damaging decisions when it comes to a relationship. And I often you can say to them, I don't know if that's a good idea. I'm not sure you should do that. And everybody else around them is saying, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And it's like, I'm not listening. I've even talked to people who are on the edge of or even in the midst of committing adultery. And you're saying to them, this is really awful. And the damage you're going to make, and it's like, I'm not listening. It's just bouncing off. And Jacob is like, not listening. He's hearing whatever he wants to hear. He's seeing whatever he wants to see. Now, if you know the story, and obviously we read it, Laban then deceives Jacob, okay? There's a bit of reaping what he has sown, isn't there? Jacob deceives his brother and his dad. Now, his prospective father-in-law deceives him, and somehow, I don't know how this works, maybe Jacob had a lot to drink, I don't know, but he goes to bed on his wedding night thinking he's with Rachel, and he's not. And Jacob brings the older, less attractive sister. And what you find in verse 25 of chapter 29 is a very telling verse about what is happening really in this story. And it says this, so he goes to bed with Rachel, 
But verse 25 says this, when the morning came, there was Leah. You see, this story is not just about love, although there is love in it. This story is about what the Bible calls idolatry. Jacob is not just searching for a wife. He is looking for a savior. He's looking for someone to complete him. He is staking everything on Rachel. If only I have Rachel, I'll be complete. If only I have Rachel, then I'll be satisfied. If only I have Rachel, then my life will be whole again. And Jacob goes to bed thinking he's arrived, thinking he's got everything he ever wanted, and he wakes up and realizes it's not Rachel, it's Leah. That is how an idol works in our hearts. We fixate on something. It's not something, something necessarily wrong in itself. It's just that we put it in the wrong place in our hearts. We give it the wrong amount of priority in our hearts. And we think, if only I can have that, if I can have that career or that marriage, or if I can have those kids or that money or that recognition or whatever it is, then if I get it, and I'm going to give everything to get it, and you know it's an idol if basically you start to sacrifice everything around you just to have it, People will sacrifice their kids just to have a career. And you get it. You think, if I get there and I arrive, I'm going to be happy, fulfilled, satisfied, healed. And you get it. And you think, I've arrived. And you go to bed with what you think is Rachel. And you wake up in the morning and it's still Leah. In other words, it never delivers what you think it's advertising. So you keep searching, don't you? Again and again and again. John Calvin once said, the human heart is like an idol factory. In other words, we just create something else to go for, looking for something to deliver us what we're really searching for. And for Jacob, the issue is romantic love. Because of his history, he's very susceptible to this. Because of the lack. Dads, if you have daughters, you need to love your daughters, give them attention, be physical with them, because if you're not, they will look for that in some other guy's hands. Right? Jacob is susceptible to, to romantic, to that being the thing because of what happened or didn't happen for him at home. Leah, it's similar but different because she's grown up in the, in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister. In other words, everybody knows Rachel. Everyone talks about Rachel. Everybody remembers Rachel. Everybody says hi to Rachel and smiles when wants a photo with her at the party. But Leah, everyone ignores. And even her dad can't find a better way to get her married than to kind of deceive this guy. That's how she grows up. So she's looking for a savior as well in Jacob. But what she's looking for, she's thinking, if I can give him kids, because Rachel's barren. So if I have a kid, so kid number one, now he'll love me. Kid number two, because I'm not loved, he's seen me. Kid number three, at least he'll be attached to me. In other words, if I have enough children, then finally I'll arrive and I'll be whole. It doesn't work for Jacob. And it doesn't work for Leah. And it doesn't work for me, and it won't work for you. It never satisfies because we are loading into these things which are not wrong in themselves, marriage or kids or career, good things, but we are loading onto them expectations. They will give us something they were never designed to give us. And the disappointment you feel having gone after them is designed to push you back to him. That's why in Romans it says, all of creation is subject to frustration. Why is it there? It's frustrating because it's designed to go, because there is one who can satisfy and you're searching in the wrong place. Come back, come back. 
And that's where you get to level three in the story. Level three, the layer underneath. They're searching, they're searching. What are they searching for? They're searching for someone to save them. They're searching for a savior. They may not use that language, but that's what they're looking for, something to complete them. And that's what we do. And once again, what we find in Genesis, like you do every time you look at one of these stories, it's an amazing book, is you find in this little family story, you find a kind of micro story of the much bigger story of the human race and what God is doing and what has happened and what is he planning to do. Jacob sins, deceives his brother and his dad and has to leave home. Okay, Because of our sin, ever since Adam and Eve, we had to leave Eden. We've, we're away from home as well, just like Jacob. We're the same. And Jacob carries with himself a brokenness that we've seen goes from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob into Jacob's kids is going. And we are infected, are we not, from a brokenness of having had to leave Eden. And because of what happened with Adam and Eve in generation to generation to death, we're infected as well with sin and a brokenness. And because of the brokenness, Jacob spends his whole life searching for an answer in Rachel or wherever he can find it. And that's what we do. That's the human race's story. We look everywhere to find some kind of fulfillment, something that will satisfy our soul. Everything about this story is a mirror of the bigger story and our story. But God doesn't leave Jacob where he is, and he doesn't leave Leah, and that's also part of our story. Hallelujah. See, God intervenes for Jacob. God does something remarkable in Jacob and in Leah, and in the human race, God is intervening, has intervening, intervened, and is intervening, and does not lead us, leave us in this circle and cycle of disappointment. So God intervenes with Jacob and doesn't leave him stuck. So if you feel like, oh, I'm stuck, well, God doesn't leave him stuck. He doesn't want to leave you stuck. And if you fast forward two chapters into chapter 31, then God speaks to Jacob and he says this, now, Jacob, it's time to go back to the land you came from. God says you need to go back. Go back home, in other words. Time to go home. I remember being in a meeting and I remember hearing someone preach, and I remember God, I felt God say to me, it's time to go home. That wasn't about going back to my parents' house. It wasn't a geographical thing. It was about a spiritual thing. Time to stop wandering. It's time to stop being half-hearted and divided. It's time to come home. And God speaks to Jacob and says, it's time to come back. Now, there's a huge problem for Jacob in about coming back. Well, two problems. Okay? First problem is this. He has married Laban's daughters. He's worked for him for decades. He's absolutely entwined in this family. He, they, they share the same wealth, all the same flocks, all the, all the family. In other words, he's, he's snared. It's like he's captive. And Jacob knows that if he tries to extricate himself and tries to get out of Laban's house, Laban's going to come after him. It's very similar to the Israelites trying to get out of Egypt. Pharaoh's not going to be happy. We're captive, are we not? In addictive habits and sinful patterns that we can't get out of, but we want to get home to him. We want to come back to him because he's the one who satisfies. But there, he's snared. Jacob's snared. We're snared. And Jacob also knows, if I come home, if I get home, who's waiting for him at home? Esau. With 400 mates, the story says. Okay, they're not, that's not the welcome party. That's not like, yeah, Jacob's... Esau's with 400 guys. And you think, man, he's going to kill him. He's waited a long time. In other words, 
There's judgment waiting for Esau, for Jacob, because of the sins of his youth. So he's caught. He's captive. He can't get out. If, even if he does get out, there's judgment waiting. We're captive. We can't get out. But even if we could get out, there's judgment over us because of our sin and rebellion. He's caught. But God intervenes. God hunts him down. Okay, it's amazing. First of all, he, he, he interrupts Laban by giving him a dream. God speaks to Laban in a dream. Okay, and basically says, be very careful what you do with Jacob and what you say to him. And it's as if God just calls Laban off. It's like he calls the dogs off. Okay, and he calls him off. And at the same time, just as Jacob has got away from Laban and Esau is coming with 400 men, God meets Jacob again for a second time, just as he had at Bethel, now in another time, in another quite unusual story. And it's like God intervenes. Now notice, God does not intervene and come and rescue Jacob because Jacob has become suddenly a nice person. Often that's what we think. We think, well, if I turn a corner, if I sort myself out a bit, if I start being a bit better, and I do better things, and I try a bit harder, then, then God will intervene for me and help me out, right? That's how we think it works. We, we probably know it shouldn't work out, but that's how we effectively we think. If I can turn a corner and sort myself out and be a bit of a better person, then surely maybe that will persuade God to be good to me, and he'll bless me. But that's not how this works. Jacob has not become a nice person. He's still as much of a thief and a deceiver as he was at the start. If you know the story of how he leaves Laban's house, he basically deceives Laban to get away. Rachel steals some stuff from the house at the same time, and they run off at a time when Laban's busy doing other things with the sheep, and they run away. He deceives them, and Jacob's scheming and making plans to get away. So Jacob hasn't changed, and he's not a better person. God just intervenes because God's good to him. And so often we get grace the wrong way around because grace works that God intervenes for our good because he's good and not because we're good. But we kind of shift it and kind of go, well, maybe if I'm good, then God will be good. And it's like we start to trade on grace. We kind of go, if I do this, God will do this. If I'm good, God will be good. If I read my Bible and pray and I turn up to church and I help old people cross the road and I give to charity and, you know, I'm generally a nice person, then God will be good to me. He'll smile on me because of all these things I've done. And we make grace something we buy. We make it performance-related to ourselves. It is performance-related, but just not yours or mine. It's his so that's when, when Jesus lives a sinless life and dies the death he does, his performance counts on our behalf. So grace to us is a free gift to a surrendered heart. God intervenes for Jacob even though he is horrible. If you are here today and the truth is you've led a pretty horrible life, you're in a good place. Because God loves people who are a bit of a mess, like me and you. God comes after people who steal and deceive from their family, who marry people for the wrong reasons, who create mess in this life, who run away from father-in-laws and steal stuff they shouldn't take. God loves people like that. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. If you think, well, God could never love me, you have not understood grace. God hunts him down. I remember a time in my life I felt like God was hunting me down. I felt like I grew up in a Christian home. I was grateful for that. And I kind of 
you know, wandered off a bit and all that stuff. And I felt like, if I look back now, I feel like I was a marked man. That's what I feel like. I think for some of you, you've, you're not there with God, but you are a marked person. You know God's after you. That's what it felt like to me. And in this story, Jacob is hunted by Laban. Laban's coming after him. He's going to be hunted by Esau. But what you find is God is hunting him even more. So there's these other people wanting to get to him, and God gets to him first. Luke 15, the father runs back to the prodigal son, gets to him first. God tracks him down. God pursues Jacob. And then we get this moment where he's left Laban's house, Esau's coming with 400 men, and then Jacob devises a plan. He goes, right, I'm going to get all my kids and my families, and I'm going to split them up into two or three different groups, and I'm going to send them on ahead, which seems to me a slightly cowardly way to deal with 400 guys coming towards you. I'll send my kids and my, my wives first. They can go. But that's what he does. And he sends them all off. And then you get this verse where it says this. The night before he meets Esau, verse 24 of chapter 32, it says this. So Jacob was left alone. I think that's a very poignant phrase. Because sometimes there are moments in our lives where God goes, I'm going to get you alone. You can be in a room full of people like this and you know, man, it's like God is speaking to me. Um, it feels like, I'm a, it's like he's got me alone. I can remember moments like that as well for me. I could be in a room with thousands of people, and God, I felt God speaking. It was like, bam! God is after Jacob. Jacob was running and running for a long time from God. And then on this night, God encounters him, and then you get this quite odd, odd story. Basically, God coming as a man, and they wrestle, and you kind of go, I don't understand how this works. How's God, how's that going on? And then... Then God touches Jacob's hip and it goes out of place and he needs a hip replacement thing. No, he doesn't really. And he limps and it's like, what's going on in this story? Well, this story in part, if nothing else, is about Jacob stopping running away, God getting him, and, and, and Jacob surrendering. Now, often we talk, don't we, that I'm going to hold on to God. That is true. You should hold on to God, okay? Because Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. Well, what you find is God is holding on to Jacob. God comes after Jacob. We think, oh, God, I can't let you go. Actually, God comes, I'm not letting you go. Even though you are a nasty piece of work, Jacob, I'm not letting you go. And he wrestles, and Jacob surrenders. And that point of surrender is key in the rest of his life. It's not that Jacob gets it all right, but it is absolutely pivotal in what happens. Because at that point, from that moment, God says, I'm going to rename you, Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. That's significant because what God is saying to you is, I am now going to redefine your future in spite of your history. So our history shapes us, but it doesn't have to define us. And God says, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to change your name. That's why when God changed, Jesus changes Peter's name, I'm going to redefine you, Peter. Or it says, Paul, I'm going to, Paul, you're not going to be saw you. Paul, Peter, on this rock, I'm giving you a name. Now, this is your future. And Jacob surrenders. I believe that God wants to speak to many of us in this room today. Maybe for you, your history is you've run away from God, and the truth is, you've kind of you've known Him, 
you know about him, but maybe for you it's just been very religious. There's been no real sense of relationship with him. And you stop off with God every now and again when you feel like you need some help. And I think God wants to say to some of us today, you need to stop running and I want you to come home. And if you're wrestling right now, that probably is a sign that God is speaking to you. I can remember God speaking to me in moments about things that I had to give up. And I remember wrestling with them. It was not comfortable, but in my heart I was wrestling. Others of us here today, actually, we're kind of like, our issue is that it's like we've got a foot in both camps. One sense we're here and we're active and part of it and we lift our hands, but in our hearts, the truth is there are idols that we fixate on and that we're looking to maybe that thing, that person. If I could just get that, then my life will be healed. And you're looking for healing and saving in all the wrong places. And God wants to say to you, that's just not how this works. I want you to readdress who's first in your life. And then maybe there might be others of us here today. And the truth is, when we look at that surface layer and we think, oh man, what a mess, that family. You think, that's my history. That's my background. That was my life as a child. I feel like, and, then, and there's maybe your relational life right now is a bit of a mess. Or maybe you're so scared that you're going to recreate the mistakes of the generation before you. And I feel if that's you, God wants to say to you, I am able to redefine your future, that there is one greater than your past. Does that make sense? And I feel like God wants to say that to some of us today. He wants to get you out of that, change that, make different choices, and he is able to redefine you. Now, just as we close, something to really encourage you. Jacob, who was a thief and a deceiver and didn't trust anybody. You read the end of the Bible, you read to get to 11, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Do you know who's in Hebrews chapter 11? Jacob is. Hebrews 11 is like the hall of fame of faith and people who are amazing. And the guy who stole things and schemed and was really awful is remembered in Hebrews 11. And Leah, Leah is the one who was unlovely, unwanted, rejected, no one noticed her, desperate for some kind of sense of love from her husband. She is the one. Fourth child is Judah. When she has Judah, she says, now I'll praise you. It's through Judah's line that you get to Jesus. Jesus was also unlovely, unwanted, rejected, but he is the savior that everybody is looking for. Let me just read you what Jesus says about himself. We're going to pray. Jesus says this. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus stood up, didn't he, at a festival on the last day and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let's stand together. We're going to respond. Neil, could you come? Let's stand. I'm going to pray just as the guys come. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you say you're the answer and the end to all our longings. And we want to ask you to be very active and present amongst us now. And if God, I want to pray you give us courage. If you know that, if we know you're speaking to us, help us respond to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.